let me begin this morning by welcoming a number of visitors with us this morning. Uh, as you came in, I greeted many of you, and we're glad that you're with us. We're honored that you have come and graced us with your presence. And we hope that this morning that you will be able to be encouraged and edified as we study together from God's Word. I want to point out this morning that I am beginning a new series of lessons from the book of Ephesians. And I will tell you that perhaps one of the greatest challenges for every preacher is deciding what should be preached. Obviously, we want to please God first and foremost. We want to preach what He wants preached, His message. Then one must look and see what kind of things it is that the congregation needs and how we might be able to best address that. Well, let me point out to you as we begin that the key theme of the book of Ephesians is the church of Christ. If the Lord grants us time and opportunity, then after I study the book of Ephesians together with you, then I would like to also study the book of Colossians, where the theme there is the Christ of the church. And there's a good reason for emphasizing that is one needs to have a correct perception of the Lord's church. What is the Lord's church? What does it mean? Is it possible that I can have a distorted or perverted view of it? For instance, let me use an illustration. Too often we get a wrong perception of the family because we watch television and we have the idea sometimes that the family is uh, all, for instance, in this idealistic view. And then when you go back home and you realize not everybody in your family is that idealistic. Or you may get another perception that the family is all a bunch of angry and hard to get along with people. It's easy to get a wrong perception of the family by going to the wrong source. Too often we get a wrong perception of the Lord's church by our friends and the religious world. Is the Lord's church this great beautiful building? Does it have stained glass windows and uh, people who are involved in carrying out some sort of ritual with very little meaning and very little focus? Or is the Lord's church something else? And I believe the book of Ephesians is very important in addressing this subject. For instance, too often people go to extremes as they think about themselves as a part of the Lord's church. For instance, some are overly confident while others are full of doubt. Some people will look at themselves and say, I have not sinned. And according to 1 John chapter 1, they deceive themselves and they're calling God a liar. Others will be filled with doubt and they'll be filled, well, can I live the Christian life? In my judgment, the book of Ephesians is a very needed book to try to give us this proper amount of balance. Some people act as if they can love Christ while not at the same time loving his body, the church. There's so much emphasis, for instance, in the book of Ephesians on how Christ loved the church 
as a husband loves his wife and being sacrificial for it. This series of lessons after this morning are going to be expository sermons. When you learn how to preach, one of the things they explain to you is the different types of lessons. Some lessons are topical. You take a a topic, for instance, baptism, repentance, worship, and then you go to the Bible and you find all those passages which are relevant to it, and then you present that as a lesson. There's another means or another method of preaching which is called expository, where you simply open the scriptures and you let those dictate what it is you will discuss, what it is you will study. There's a great emphasis on expository preaching because you let God's word speak for itself. There's a great reason for that. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. Every word that you and I read has some significance, some point to it. And so as we will read and study the book of Ephesians, we're going to look importantly at the words that are found there. Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. There is power in God's word, and if we read it and study it, we will derive some of that great power toward the salvation of our souls. I have a lot that I'd like to cover in this first lesson. I'd like for us to first look at the city, then to look at the conversions, then the church leadership, and finally some criticisms. And each of these are found outside the book of Ephesians. These mostly will come from the book of Acts and some from the book of Revelation as we prepare to study this great book of Ephesians. To start with, to understand any book of the Bible, it is helpful to understand its recipients. For instance, if you're going to study the book of Acts, and you get to Acts chapter 2, and you begin to read there, you have to understand that he is addressing Jews assembled in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. When you study the book of Ephesians, it's valuable to know who these people are. Now, there are some external things that provide us information. There's a lot to be learned from the archaeologist and the anthropologist. Archaeologist is the man who digs up the various remnants, the remains, the buildings, for instance, perhaps some of the inscriptions that are on stones and on plates. And then you have the anthropologists who are able to combine all that together and give you a picture. You can visit the ruins of Ephesus today and there's a lot there to see. There's a beautiful marble paved street. There's a beautiful library and an impressive theater there. You have to realize, though, that cities have a character about them. Just like the city of McMinnville has its own character. The city of Ephesus had it. Let me illustrate this to you from the Bible. For instance, in Acts chapter 21 and verse 39, Paul is before the Jewish crowd ready to have him arrested. And he says to them, But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, 
a city of no mean, a uh, citizen of no mean city. We're not mean folks. If you go to Tarsus, they're kind, hospitable people. The one that I find real interesting is Titus 1 and verse 12 about the people of the island of Crete. And there Paul says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what they said about themselves. I'd like for you to imagine, say, hey, we're a bunch of liars. We're a bunch of evil beasts. We're mean. We're a bunch of lazy gluttons. Well, that's what a prophet of Crete said about themselves. You think about in our society today. Someone says, well, we're going to go to Sin City. You're thinking about Las Vegas. Someone says, I want to go to school near Boston. You can go to MIT. You can go to Harvard. Many of the very prestigious universities are located there. Someone says, better be careful. You're going to go to Detroit. It's a very dangerous place to be. You have to understand that cities have their own character. Ephesus had its own character. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. That means it had a diverse population from all the way around the world. Between 200 and 250,000 inhabitants there. It was a capital city. That is, it was the capital of the Roman province. And there's a good point to be made there. If you visit, you can find various temples to the various emperors that were reigning during the Roman Empire. It was a commercial city. It was the major seaport on the Aegean Sea at the Caister River. Because of that, they enjoyed a lot of wealth and a lot of pleasure. You can look at the ruins of the city and you can see beautiful homes dating back to when Paul was there when they had indoor plumbing, running water. They had beautiful frescoes, beautiful walls, and it would overlook the city with their terraces. But it was also a cultic city. There was the fertility goddess there. It was a patron of it called Diana. As you read about in Acts chapter 19, the Greek Artemis. It had a cultic prostitution, just like the city of Corinth did. That's the reason why there's so much similarity between Ephesus and Corinth. It reminds me of what you read in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, as the children of Israel came into the area of Moab and at the area of Peor. They sent out prostitutes into the acacia groves and the men of the children of Israel went there and they committed fornication and they sacrificed to their idols. The city of Ephesus was a city of this cultic prostitution. But very quickly, let me move to the conversions that occurred. If you want to open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, to chapter 18... In the latter part of chapter 18, while Paul is on his second missionary journey, he makes a stop on his way returning, and he is going to stay just a very short time in Ephesus. And we learn from Luke, he came to Ephesus and left them there, left them, he's talking about Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. 
but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So Paul just stopped briefly on his second missionary journey. He said, I'll try to come back if God wills. Well, Acts 19, on his third missionary journey, Paul does return to the city of Ephesus. And Luke records for us in the first seven verses the conversion of 12 men. We read, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now what you observe from this passage is that there were 12 men who learned the truth and became the core of the congregation. What you learn further as you go on into Acts 19 is that Paul, having laid the foundation among these Jewish men, then goes back to that Jewish synagogue and begins a preaching among the Jews. But as it occurred in almost every place where he went, immediately thereafter the Jews began to say, we don't want to hear this. And Paul turned to the Gentiles. Notice with me verses 8 through 10. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but those spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. He's in the synagogue, now he pulls out. We learn that Jews and Greeks are listening to him. By the time you get to the book of Ephesians, you're dealing with a congregation that is predominantly Gentile. Because in chapter 2, verse 11... Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore I testify, or this I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. It's obvious that the church here in Ephesus is predominantly, mainly Gentiles. There's a couple of observations that I'd like to make as you think about the conversions that occurred here. With a city as large as Ephesus, there's probably many more than just one synagogue, perhaps eight or ten of them. Because when you notice at the end of Acts 18, Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in the city of Ephesus. 
they meet Apollos, who knows only the baptism of John. And what happens is, when Paul arrives in Acts 19, there are still some people who know only the baptism of John. So they must not have all been acquainted with one another. Another observation that I think is very important is that these people were looking for a real change in direction. And this is where I think there's some application for us as well as we start placing this before us. Are there people really looking for a change in direction in their lives? I believe so. People who are worshiping in false ways, worshiping false gods, realize that there's something lacking. In Acts 19, beginning with verse 16, there was a man who had been uh, possessed by an evil spirit. Paul had, uh, or had been casting out evil spirits. There's these strolling Jews who have been trying to exercise these various spirits and it leapt on him, overpowered him, leaving him naked and wounded. When people heard about that in verse 17, the name of the Lord was magnified. And don't you look at verse 18. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And they totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. These are people wanting a change in life. But number three, the third thing to look at, as you look at the church at Ephesus, is its leadership. Sometime during Paul's two and a half years stay there in Acts 19, or shortly thereafter, there were elders appointed in the church. And when Paul is going back on his journey toward Jerusalem, he is going to stop at Miletus and he's going to send for the elders and have them come and meet him. That's Acts chapter 20. And I want you to notice with me verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. There are now men who are elders in that congregation who are guiding, directing, and helping those people. So they're going to meet with Paul, and Paul has some message to them. Second thing, if you will notice, verse 28. He tells them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Some translations, instead of translating overseers, translates it bishops. He says they're elders, and now he calls them bishops. The third thing to notice is to shepherd, or if you're reading an older translation, to feed the church of God. That word, to shepherd, is the same original word as to pastor. So what do I observe here? That the office of an elder, a presbyter, or overseer, a bishop, and that of a shepherd or a pastor are one and the same. Each of those refers to the same office. The second thing that I observe here is that the role that these elders 
where a sign was extremely important. They were made overseers by the Holy Spirit. It was at the Holy Spirit's directions. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here are the qualifications. The Holy Spirit designated who it was to serve as elders. The second thing that you notice of this thing is that they were to take heed to themselves and to the flock. Look at yourselves, who you are. How are you conducting yourself? Look at the flock. Are you taking care of them? Protecting them. They were to beware because there were wolves going to enter in among the flock. Notice with me verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Churches are going to have difficulties because there are going to be people who are going to try to infiltrate. And Paul is warning them about that. Verse 30, he also says that there's some of them are going to start seeking to make disciples after themselves. They're going to be filled with pride. Verse 30, and from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. That's why you have to take heed to yourself and to the flock. Be careful because there are going to be wolves that are going to be coming in. But you yourself can become what you ought not to be. Then verse 32, he says, So now, brethren, I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. He says, I want you to remember that God and his word, the word of his grace, is what is able to build up a church. And then finally... He tells them in verse 35 that they have to remember and support those who are weak. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And then he quotes the Lord, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if you will, I'd like for you to fast forward with me about 30 years the church has been established. It has elders that are overseeing it. And by the time I get to Revelation chapter 2, some 30 years later, we can see what has developed in this congregation. Some churches improve while some regress. Some churches will make great strides in maturity and love. And others will go backwards. The church at Ephesus had both. There were areas where they had continued to do very well and other areas where they had not. They were still very strong doctrinally. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered for my name's sake and labored, or persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Verse 6, he said, You also hate the Nicolaitans' doctrine or the deeds, which I also hate. But there was a problem. According to verse 4, he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
The word left means to forsake, to abandon. God's no longer number one in their life. According to Matthew 6 and verse 33, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God was not number one anymore in their life. As you begin to explore and think about how this could occur and why it might have occurred, I think Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 24 verses 12 and 13 could certainly be some indication. We read there, and because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. You think about a church that lives in a lawless society and how that begins to invade and infect a local congregation. And I would suggest to you that Ephesus had allowed themselves to be infected by a world of lawlessness. And because of that, their love began to grow cold. You see, the church at Ephesus had such great potential, had such great directions. The book of Ephesians, in my estimation, is a marvelous book. We know that as long as it is a part of God's scriptures, that it's always going to be great and wonderful and marvelous. We're going to read about the God's plan of what he wanted them to be and how he wanted them, them to conduct themselves. And then we have to make application. Will we be the church, and notice where the quotations marks are, of Christ that he wants us to be? Will we be the church that God has envisioned in his divine plan that he has provided for, that he has directed, and that he has guided. Well, there's so much that is there in the book of Ephesians. I'd like to encourage you over these next few weeks to study with me intently as we study together this great book. This morning... As we bring this lesson to a close, it's very possible in this audience that we have those who need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've not yet been baptized for the remission of your sins. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And you can respond to his love by faith and obedience by being baptized for the remission of your sins. When we sing the song of encouragement, if you'll come to the front up here, we'll assist you in your obedience to the gospel. It's also very possible that we have among our number those who need to be restored to faithfulness. If you do, we're going to pray with you, and we encourage you and invite you to come as together we stand and sing.